1: But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
0: Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest
2: podcast for punk music beyond the Cuyahoga. Today we're going to go ahead and skip trivia and jump right into our turntable talk. Everybody is
1: talking at me I don't hear a word they say,
2: Only the echoes of my mind No one man can make a scene, but perhaps one can be an embodiment of it. A representation of what makes a place and its music intertwined. Like his beloved Cleveland itself, the emblematic and occasionally problematic Peter Lochner was on the fringes of the American music canon. A shadowy presence in a shadowy place at the time when rock and roll was dark, smart, and powerful. But that is the thing about underground music. It can happen in the most unlikely places. And underground music needs people with vision and determination to make it live. The real tragedy of Peter Lochner, beyond his self-destructive tendencies and untimely death, is that he is often remembered most for his self-destructive tendencies and untimely death. Though his importance has been well-documented in his circles of influence, his reflective writing, his otherworldly guitar playing, and the scarce snippets of music that were made available through bootlegs and a single disjointed compilation, his status as a rock-and-roll victim and burnt-out luminary overshadow the music itself.
0: Thankfully, Smogvale Records has remedied this situation by releasing a beautiful new 5-LP box set of Peter Lochner material containing mostly lo-fi home tapes, demos, and live recordings. The music, like the man, is complicated, dizzyingly ambitious, starkly rich, and pushing boundaries in different directions. In the wake of his short and troubled existence, many of his lyrics seem prescient, but heard on their own their poignant, moving, and real. His choice of covers, many that would raise eyebrows from those who recognize Lochner as a scorching, proto-punk guitar madman, show the depth of sonic inspirations. Robert Johnson, Jimmy Rogers, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, Michael Hurley, The Modern Lovers, Television, and of course, Lou Reed. The same thread of misunderstood brilliance runs through Lochner as with these artists who balance Zeitgeist Terroir and anachronistic relevance. This compelling collection allows Lochner's music to be evaluated from a different perspective, one that gives equal weight to the man as a musician rather than as an icon. Gorgeously packaged and meticulously curated over many years, the box set gives the time and care that Peter Wachner has earned. The songs, often rescued from boxes in basements, are mastered with attention and sound as good as they possibly can be, considering the sources, acoustics, and locations. The background noises, tape hiss, and crowd chatter often serve the music almost as an additional instrument, a reminder of the gritty origins of the recordings. The biography written by today's guest, Nick Blakey, illuminates his life just enough to give it some shape, but not enough to lay bare all that Lochner was. It's doubtful that any amount of research could master that task.
2: There's no doubt that Peter Lochner was an incendiary spark for the Cleveland alternative rock scene of the 70s. He played in a gang of short-lived bands, including Mr. Charlie, Cinderella Backstreet, Peter and the Wolves, The Blues Drivers, and Friction. Bands changed wildly as Lochner's brain refused to sit still, engaging in new sounds far faster than his bandmates could keep up with. Of course, most of his renown comes from being a member of both the proto-punk Master Blasters, Rocket from the Tombs, and then his short-lived stint in their seminal art-punk offshoot, Para-Ubu. His other major claim to fame, or perhaps infamy, was his musical writing, which spurred a tumultuous friendship with fellow critic Lester Banks. That writing, though different than Bang's, has a similar tone of deep personal involvement with the music, a messy sense of belonging, and blending of biography, fiction, and criticism with a sardonic and nihilistic bent. He engaged easily with his audience because he was his audience.
0: Here's some of what he wrote about the Modern Lovers self-titled album, taken from the unfairly impressive hardbound liner notes from this new box set. Velvets meets Stooges meets Doors meets Boy Next Door, who has a sinus infection. Though not from nasty habits, most of the reputed $12,000 dropped by Warners on John Cale to produce Modern Lovers' demos must have gone up somebody's nose, but not Jonathan Richman's. The Modern Lovers album is good stuff. It's the album Transformer could have been.
2: And here's some of his thoughts on television's Marquee Moon. To me, the term punk rock means nothing. If it's supposed to mean rock music played with a deliberate lack of finesse and intelligence, it means less than nothing when applied to television. Chords haven't chimed so wild since The Birds, or maybe Love's first album, or ripped and bitten since The Velvets were on Verve. And the lead lines, sometimes angular and unpredictable, yet always conceptually
0: logical. And finally, my favorite of his many takes on many Lou Reed albums. Here's a letter to Lou about... Rock and roll heart. Dear Lou, Honest to God, I played this album at least 46 times all the way through, listened to it in every possible condition I could put myself into, went to see the show with 40-odd video screens wanking behind you, have only been drunk twice and filled my volume script once since it came out. Quit seeing my shrink, I got a steady job. All I can say is, your LP is less tedious than Stevie Wonder's latest. But that's like saying Novocaine is more effective than Procaine. I don't feel anything. I find it as painless and boring as modern dentistry. Two questions. One, where did you hide the guitars? Two, what in the name of modern science is a rock and roll heart?
2: Other whispers and stories followed him, as with most enigmatic personas. He hauled back the most important writing and music from New York City to evangelize punk in Cleveland. He was slated to replace Richard Lloyd in television. He got kicked off the stage by Patti Smith, or his stalking Lou Reed in New York. In 1977, he succumbed to acute pancreatitis at the age of only 24, a product of the ridiculously hard living. He left his final recordings on a single cassette made in his bedroom with an acoustic guitar and a six-pack of Genesee beer. Included in the box set is the final disc, Nocturnal Digressions, the songs are haunting, and not only because they were produced on the night before he died.
0: Today, we're playing an interview with Nick Blakey, a Northwestern Ohio music archivist and a producer on the box set who spent a decade working on it. He speaks about what he has learned about Peter Lochner, the sometimes grueling process of culling hours of tapes to a five LP set, his perspective on hero worship, and a myriad of fascinating stories about his years as a fan record collector, bootleg trader, musician, researcher, writer, and archivist. Nick was incredibly insightful and passionate about music and we're thankful for his time, his wit, his knowledge, and his willingness to give us an inside look on building a legacy through vinyl.
3: the stuff I do with Smogwale is actually covering my degree, which is, you know, kind of amazing in two thousand eighteen America. Or even the world really that you can you can be doing writing and research and as well as audio work, uh, because I work directly with Sam Abos, who does the pre-mastering and restoration and fixing work before we send it off to Jeff and Maria uh, Peerless. But we work on that together, so that's a glorious thing. Uh, but my, uh, I've I, unfortunately, it's kind of like uh, Carlito's way with Al Pacino, in which he said, you that know, I'm a booking agent, and I have been since the '90s, but it's it's like you know every time i try to get out they pull me back in you know i just can't <laughs> it. but i mean i've worked retail i've worked security i worked in a complaints department for three weeks at a phone company which led to me uh just walking out uh walking to the boss's office and saying you know i'm all done and um yeah mostly it's it's, it's it's the booking agent and stuff. And then, uh, retail. Oh, I don't work retail anymore. Um, but yeah, so that's, you know, I don't think all of us, all of us do that. All of us work other jobs, um, and do this where we can fit it. Uh, so that's not why it took 10 years, Joe, just so you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know that's not why. Um, but yeah, so but it's, it's sort of a, uh, I'm sort of on a seesaw, running between the two sides. If you if you can visualize that, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I, it's 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 nice to have work in something that I would be probably doing anyways, if that makes any exactly. sense. Exactly.
0: Yeah, okay. that makes absolute perfect sense. That's exactly what Ryan and I were doing with this. The podcast we do is just basically uh, trying to find underrepresented aspects of music history that we love and it started with just the, the two of us finding a topic, doing doing research for a few weeks on it and then telling the other one about it. And then we figured why don't we why don't we just record this? Um
3: so <laughs> so that's well, kind of what as I told you to do. <laughs> Right. And as I told you online, you know, anyone who names their podcast after an old leg label is uh, got my heart. <laughs> in, uh, no. uh, Maybe that's not what you did, but I it, you know, I had a I think I had a Beatles bootleg live in any town on Highland Hi Fi. So, you I know, think that their Hi-Fi. biggest the biggest one of theirs that I
0: remember was the Van Morrison one. They did a really important Van Morrison one. I don't know if it was the Astral Weeks or if it was the um contractual obligation one, but they did a they did a good a big one of those
3: from what i mm. remember. Oh, God. the you know, bang demos. That those are insane. That's like performance art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, bootlegs are a big part of the reason, even how I got into this stuff, because I always felt it was sort of a, and this does relate actually to our topic and probably what you do as well. You know, bootlegs <laughs> is sort of a, represented this alternate history of, of music history, you know. It, records that bands put out themselves that um you know i, I, I can't say like it didn't get released otherwise i mean I don't know, like spunked by the sex pistols or the drc demos called joy Division, which came up as a warsaw or the, the third um pavlov's dog record you know which got rejected by the label so you know but also you know live recordings and I always think about like the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl, like they put out a complete 64 tape and how it was so much more satisfying than what Capitol had, Capitol EMI had offered up, which was the combo of the two shows. But I really kind of wanted to find out more of this secret history, this alternate history. And uh, that put me into the bootleg circuit. And tape uh, trading, and I got things like you know "Times Up" by the Buzzcocks, those demos from '76 before they that came was out. Great, yeah. Oh yeah, and then like the wire demos that they did for the album that never got made between "Pink Flag" and "Here's Missing," stuff like "Not About to Die." Do- no, 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 sorry, about that one. Um, you know, stuff like uh, Maid, "Save the Bullet," and they ended up not. That stuff's all since come out, but they they decided not to do that because Colin I think said he would have been a son of pink flag, and they didn't feel the need to repeat themselves, which they've never done in their career. So, which you know, I, so they
0: admire. I wanted, I would, you know, I wanted, I wish they would have released them, but I like the reason that they didn't.
3: Right, and I mean, but still, at least they have come out. I mean, the record that I wish that they had made was the one that would have followed one five four. Or 154, whatever you want to do, uh, call it. Uh, you know, stuff like, um, it's the stuff that they were doing at the Notre Dame Hall uh, concert that came out on um, Document and Eyewitness. You know, stuff like Safe. And uh, some of that stuff later turned up on Collins Solo Records. And that stuff just to be like totally fascinated. But that leads to, of course, you know, the first Collins Solo and Dome and. All that great stuff, but I'm getting way out of Ohio, so let me zoom back. I'm only about 50 years. No, please. You <laughs> can't get on 10, so throw that out, Joe. I get on No, 10, no, this 10. is great.
0: I love um, that.
3: was That was when he was on 4AD, is that right? When it's all yes. stuff? So. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And, you know, I love all that stuff, too, but. You know, and um, especially I—I I don't think I worship at the temple of Bruce Gilbert, so it—I won't make—I won't lie <laughs> about that. Uh, he's also an extraordinarily nice guy. Actually, all of them are. Uh, I had an opportunity to spend some time with them, and I got to know him pretty well. And he's a wonderful person. And if you ever meet Graham, be sure to ask him about the Roxy Music tour that Wired in '79.
0: Um,
3: I, can you?
0: Yeah. How did you? Um, how did you come across, or how did you come into meeting them, Just, if you don't mind going into that a little?
4: No, not at all. I
3: and this sort of, but this is, you know what,
4: you know what, you, this is related
0: to
3: Lochner. and I will let me kind of try to do a full circle, and hopefully your listeners aren't like groaning and getting fast forward.
0: I think stories um, stories like this are exactly what we, what Ryan and I always want to hear. So that's what
3: we're gonna. I mean. That's what we okay. want. It'll get um, back where it needs to go. Well, you might have seen this morning. I wrote about this, folks. Um, so I won't plug it because I don't make money from it, but it, this is actually how Joe and I, or maybe it was Ryan and I, but I I have a Twitter account called Underground Zoo Box. The handle is clean beyond. That originally sort of started out as sort of an outlet to just talk about all the stuff that I was learning and gathering as part of the Smog bill team. And Andrew Russ and I, who's the other researcher, met through the bootleg circuit, as did Sam Abash. And we met, I met them through a gentleman named Michael Sue, who used to be a DJ years and years ago on KBS FM at Davis. And one of his, Mike's most notorious moves was through the bootleg circuit, he got the original Steve Albee mix of In Utero. By Nirvana, and he plugged the whole thing one night. And uh, so I guess we're all a bit snarky that way, and that we would come across things that we'd go record shows. But I found a 390 Degrees of Simulated Studio at Reckless Records in San Francisco, where I grew up, uh, when I was about 15 or 16, because I had read about Parubu, and they seemed intriguing. And it was a Rolling Stone book, and there was a photo of David Thomas in a suit, sweaty, like singing. And I remember the caption was David Thomas, funniest man in rock. And just reading about them, I was so int- intrigued, especially with my bootlegs. This was I had read that this was a compilation of various live uh, performances, you know, either you know audience tapes or samples. And so I picked it up because I knew. This was kind of my real part. And I was bored. I it was I said that uh, when we did the presentation in Columbus several years ago, um, the, the really wonderful folks from Straight the Video had asked me some questions and I had said, you know, listening to Perubu was the moment that I realized that I didn't have to live a normal life. I didn't have to go, you know, uh, get a suit and tie job get married, although I'm married now, but get married, have kids, uh, live in the suburbs and, you know, smash my head against the wall through, uh, you know, alcohol and uh, rotary club meetings and, and just, you know, die a lot quicker than one needs to, be, one needs to as a human being. <clears throat> and it sort of opened up my eyes to the possibilities and it went from there. I wanted more. So I picked up Dove Housing, I picked up Modern Dance, I saw Earth, and where they do birdies with Mayo Thompson on guitar, I thought they looked like, I don't know, here they are in suits, and, you know, David's just being goofy, and Tony Mamone and Mayo Thompson look like, you know, CEOs, and I just thought they were like the most badass-looking group I'd seen since the Zeroes, you know, which was... uh uh, Javier Escovito's band, and we go Yep. Alves. Yep, And those guys look so cool on me, too. And there's a lot to be said for Image, and especially when the music matches Image. And, you know, on 300 New Degrees, there was stuff Lochner, and I'm reading about this guy, Peter Lochner, I'm like, who is this guy? And Tim Wright, as well. And I had found some DNA recordings, like, the following year, and just was full. Oh, by these folks, who who were these, Ohio, you know, Cleveland? Um, what, you know, and then I, you know, when I finally saw photos of people, it was like, here's this dude in the shade and leather and just like, he looked like the coolest, uh, coolest motherfucker I'd ever, you know, lunatic on rock and roll, maybe since, I don't know, uh, John Deacon, I thought John Deacon was cool. Yeah, Queen, I thought he was just like, wow, this guy's like, you know, very really cool. John Entwistle too. you know, these guys were just sort of holding down the fort. And, uh, I thought John Jett was cool. I Alita Ford was cool. Um, and so it was sort of that. And getting into the bootleg circuit, you meet other people who thought these guys were cool and you get recordings. And I, I received, um, Perubu at the Mistake in 76, which eventually got released as Shifts of Things. I got Nocturnal Degressions and a few other scattered things. Rocket from the Tunes, I got turned on by my friend Peter Conrad, who he said, Oh, if you like Perubu and the Dead Boys, you'll like this. And it was extraordinary. I remember listening to Rocket from the Toons in my mother's kitchen for the first time and hearing that version of 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, and then blew away the version that, I, that Perubu had done on the 45. Um because I could comprehend it more. It was coming yeah. from a raw more rock and roll, more punk rock place, if you will, proto punk rock. Uh, so what I started to do because I wanted more and because I was precocious yes. is I would open up the phone book or I'd call four one one. Was it five 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 one two one two? Is that the number? We <laughs> and um I would look up people and try to find them. And um, I went to go see Perugu at the Cactus Club in San Jose because I was in San Jose State at the time when they were on the Imago tour in 93. And it was an extraordinary night for me because I met Scott Krause, David. I met Jim Jones, um, Joe Temple, but Tom Herman and Lenny Bilby, were in the audience, and Lenny was Tom's bass player. It was the bass player on by Jimmy, which was Tom's post Ubu band. Have you ever heard them?
0: No, no, I don't know them.
3: They're astounding, uh, especially the second record, "Warning All Strangers." Uh, Tom's guitar work in in Jimmy is just explosive. I mean, it's volcanic, and they kind of do this. It's hard to say. It's it's like they're 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 sort of like the Minutemen but says that diet of funk and I don't mean like white funk uh I mean to me a good white funk is like early a certain ratio but I mean it's a different kind it's really hard to explain but Tom's playing is the way it's, it's going beyond what he did in Ubu and um I met them both, and I started hanging out with Tom and Lenny, and I remember going to see Tom, and I'm about 18, 19, 19, and he had stacked photos we went through, and he had a photo of this guy on stage with long hair, looking like a ghost, and I remember saying, who's that? And he goes, oh, that's Peter. That's Peter towards the end. And Tom's, unfortunately, lost that photo, but um, yeah, they just, he looked. Um, and so I was further intrigued and Tom had some tapes and it just went from there Uh, David Thomas put me in touch with Jim Jones who put me in touch with Jim Ellis who posed Klee and I got got sort of like okayed by everybody they all said oh this guy's okay you know he's not trying to exploit us and um, it went from there Jim gave me Recordings of mirrors and electric eels, um, and just all this stuff, you know, blew my mind because it also led to my appreciation. Because learning about who they were playing with, it led to my appreciation, you know, uh, of mirrors and sirens, but also the electric eels and X Blank X. And I was also already a fan of Devo. Uh, the first record I ever bought was a used copy of Freedom of Choice for three dollars when I was uh I think eight years old because I had birthday money and I said that's what I want. So um you know, then that means the fifteen sixty seventy five the numbers band, uh, the Rubber City Rebels, Bizarro's Chai Pick, Tim Huey, um most of Mr. Stress Blue's band and Jimmy Lay, but also a group called groups like Don Young's Production, who played with a bunch who are one of the, the most underrated groups from that era, who I think are the only one who really loves them, because every time I play the single for people, they go, oh, this isn't that special. And I'm like, don't you hear the time shift three times in this song? No, this isn't fun. But, you know, uh, I can send you that, but I, I think it's extraordinary. Um, Sticky, Sweet, the Sticky Sweet Power Pop with just the darkest... Dark is just despairing lyrics. Um
0: I wouldn't dawn is a, I have not ever heard that.
3: Yeah, and this was the seventy seven at Suma with uh, Ken Hangman on the board and you know, who also did Final Solution in the first two U records. But uh Yeah, and it's got this synth on it, this droning synth in the background sounds a lot like the synth on Decades by Joy Division. <laughs> and um I've played for people, I I I played for people they're like, and I'm like, uh so I'll send that to you. Yeah. But it's you know, that all these groups knew each other and played with each other. The only other scene you really know like that is, besides, you know, you know, San Francisco and stuff in New York is um you know, Manchester, England. You know, like you know, Joy Division in the fall, certain Ray Show, uh, Chris Bandles, all those groups playing together, and it's just sort of extraordinary to me when these things happen. And the groups aren't really competing with each other; they're more holding each other up, regardless of the styles of music. You know, sort of like the Ramones and Talking Heads is a great example. Uh, How they toured together, played together a ton, because it's really kind of this yin yang thing. So, that's what happened then, Instead sort of leading into your first question about Ohio, um, but I met guys in Wire uh, through a friend who knew them, and this was when they played the Roxy here in Boston in 2000, and he just said, hey, do you have a car? And I said, I don't, but the guy I'm with does. He goes, okay, do you want to meet Wire? And and that's where that happened, and, you stay in touch with people, you know, for the same reasons, you know, maybe you have recordings where you just, when you find out that they're actually really nice people, which the case too with one of the Buzzcocks in 1993, I managed to get backstage, don't ask me, I have no idea. And Tony Barber, who was the baseball at that time, uh actually had a whole stash of factory record bands, and he had uncirculated tapes of Section 25 and Crispy Ambulance, which I was then able to share with those bands, which was another thing I liked to do, because uh, I thought it was only fair. And yeah. it, all of this is sort of tied in. I mean, this was my life until I started playing in bands, and then that and I played instruments through, through my teen years. I've always been a baseball and a drummer, but that kind of consumed my life, and I kind of drifted away. Although I just I bought way too many records, uh, which I, I I feel like uh, I carry them on my back, you know, <laughs> like a guy the guy on the cover. I have. I have a floor. pretty good idea of what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Luckily, I have a very patient and tolerant wife, who also has a lot of records. So, um, but so that's sort of how is how that. Happens. and Andrew, Russ, and I were, were gathering stuff on our own, meeting people, talking to people, doing our own research, trying to sort of unravel for fun this mystery that was Peter Lochner, and in 1985, I was in New York. My mother was there for a business thing, and I met with her, and sure enough, first thing I did was open the phone book, and Ardo Lindsay is not in there. Tim Wright wasn't in there, but Akua Mori was, and I called her, and I said, hi, I'm a huge fan of DNA, da 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 And she said, I think the person you want to talk to is Tim Wright, and she gave me his number. And I called him, and we were talking, and he didn't say a word, and then he goes, I must see you. Can you come by here at 11 o'clock tonight? Tim had a real distinctive voice, and I sort sure I hung out with him. We talked for a long time. Um, I had some DNA live tapes he didn't have. And we talked a little bit about Perubu. And I got a phone call from him after I gave him the tapes, like, several weeks later. And he said, you know, one of those tapes you sent me was a show from a tour that was aborted because I thought we sounded like – I was having real problems with this shit. I thought it sounded like – he said – I felt like I was shredding cabbage up there, and he said, you know, listening to that tape, I realized we sounded pretty damn good, so this despair I have had been carrying around with me since the 80s is now gone, thanks to you, and that sort of, you know, just shattered me, <clears throat> so it just it a wonderful um,
0: thing to hear, I mean, that's just, that's not something you hear from people very
3: often. Well, he was one of my base heroes, and then when he came to see a band I was in called the Takers at the Knitting Factory in 2002, um, which was an early date with my now wife, Amanda. Um, he was very charming, as he was. Tim was an extraordinarily charming, but he was also sort of not of this earth. He had a very holy presence to him. So, you know, he walked into a room, you you, you, go, you couldn't help but turn your head. and he praised my bass playing, which destroyed me because I, you know, when you please the master, what do you do? And that band broke up not too long afterwards, and I didn't pick up a bass for four years because I, I didn't know, I didn't know where to go after that. Um, but he, you know, was so charming and had a huge impact also on my relationship with Amanda. So. um and takes y- ex now widow you know, where Marianne and I always remain close. Uh, she's family and she is the executor of the Locker estate. So that of course helped immensely in this whole project. Um so I you know that's this is you had asked me about what is it like, you know, to sort of immerse yourself in somebody's life as much. And it's fucking exhausting. <laughs> and uh, I don't know Peter any better, really, than I did when it started out. Uh, we started this thing out. Um, it's never been my goal to kind of unlock the van. But it just sort of was this gathering of trying to gather as much as we could and then making a decision about. What might best represent him in a box set um, and um uh, you know you asked also, Dad, did we have arguments about track selections no i mean we don't we don't fight or argue about these things um were there tracks that I wish had gone on the box set in place of others oh hell yeah, and i lost I won some of those, I lost some of those. It's not a fight, but um I worried that there was a little too much Lou Reed, and maybe not enough of some other artists that Peter covered, such as like Babies on Fire, but by Finn's,
0: you know. Oh, okay.
3: uh, by yeah. we you know, which is still available on the 45, if you want, you can find it.
0: Yeah, I, and, oh, wait, not Peter, not the Peter Lochner version, you mean the Finn's version, right?
3: Well, yeah, that's what Peter, I mean, that's Peter and Benzik, Robert Benzik. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, Scott Krause, uh, Deb Smith, and uh, Lackland McIntosh. And uh, we put What Goes On, on the box, which is also the 45, but um, the one that I wanted, and what I really hope comes out some days, they do an absolutely astounding version of Brian Ferry's arrangement of The In Crowd, with Peter nailing the David Liss guitar solo. I think it's David List to does it on the Ferry version. Um, that just to me is just mind blown but it's like eleven minutes long. Uh, so they do at uh, that show too. I mean, they do for, They do "Bays on Fire." They do "What Goes On." They do "Walking the Dog" by Rufus Thomas, and they do uh, "In Crowd." And then the rest of it is these weird, you know, kind of improv jams that sort of sound like hot rats, but. Lochner notoriously hated Zappa, so I, you know, <laughs> you know Benzik was way into Tangerine and Dream and, you know, Wendy Carlos, so all of this kind of informs us, but I mean, you know, Scott Krause loved that Peacock, so uh, it's interesting stuff. That is one recording that I do hope comes out, and I would love to put on the fourth side of a double vinyl or of uh, the complete um, Michael Hronick tape that we excerpt, excerpted on the, uh, the 45, mm-hmm. which, is, which is the track called Heart Part 2 which is the Michael's fusion uh, tape with Scott and Benzik and uh, Peter and Albert Dennis I'd love to put that whole thing on there too because that's, that's sort of like Michael Hronick backed by essentially Finn's and um, I think it's really extraordinary stuff but any future releases that come out, that is up to Frank from Smogville and Marianne of the Lochner. I, that's not um, my say. I mean, I'm I'm working on our next releases anyhow, with not Lochner, but um, I'm that's what I'm immersed in right now, and I have been since the box set was wrapped. Uh, frankly, I'm. Are you, just are glad you able to talk? Done. Are you able to talk about what that next release is? I, uh, there are three, I can talk about one. Uh, one of the, what we're going to be doing, this is not official, okay, so this is, because we haven't made this announcement, but I'm happy to talk about it because I just wrapped the track since I'm off the sim yesterday. We're going to be doing, uh, a Jimmy Lay compilation of stuff spanning 1969-74. And, uh, are you, do you know who Jimmy is? No. Who was that? Jimmy uh, was one of Peter's local heroes, and he talks about him in the, piece from October 11th, 74, the Rock River Barrage, you know, Cleveland has you know, three top mm-hmm. bands, or top three bands, and Jimmy's one of the ones he talks about. Him. Jimmy's, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting, he sort of is like a, when you think about um, blues in Cleveland, and basically in Cleveland Camp Akron, there's like basically five folks who come up, and it's Mr. Stress, numbers band, Robert Jr. Lockwood, of course. Um, guy named Dave Griggs and um Jimmy Lay. And Jimmy Jimmy has an astounding, fascinating history. Um he had long running residencies at the Mistake, which was underneath the Agora, and several other clubs in town. Um he was good friends with Glenn Schwartz. He um became friends with Peter several people the, of the note past go ahead.
0: On the um sorry, on the I hate to interrupt on the box set, uh there were yeah. there were two songs that Peter where he introduced one of them by saying um, you should go ask go to your local record store and ask for this. Um but they won't have it. Was it that? Was that who?
4: No. Um
0: God, I can't I remember. I wish I remember that name, but no <laughs>
3: Yeah, I can't forgive me. I I don't. No, no. I just thought maybe that was who who that was. Okay. Jimmy didn't put out a record till the eighties. That's okay. the thing that's had and he, you know, the whole story will be told. You know, now it can be told. You know, it'll be told, and it's an incredible history of someone who came so close and should have should have been. But a lot of folks associated with the Mr. Trust blues Band also played with Jimmy. Some folks like Chuck Drastic, Alan Green, um, Chip Fitzgerald, um, Donnie Baker. You know, he had great, great bands. And um, it's similar blues to stress, but he's also similar to the numbers band, but he has this voice. Like like a supernova, and all that came out in those days was a very rare forty five of a song called uh, "I think Your Time has come," which is going on the release and it's B side, which is the four one three and it's it's real hard to explain it's sort of this combo of like regional Southern blues with Chicago Blues with rockabilly with rock and roll um and this, you know, the string of extraordinary guitar players that he had. And, um, he wrote his own stuff, but he also did a lot of covers. And it's long overdue, much like, um, you know, or Benzik. I mean, he's yet another person from Ohio who was made, doing extraordinary things that have slipped in the cracks of history simply because he wasn't, they weren't represented by, you know, records or, or just anything outside of their regional uh fame. And Jimmy did start getting out of he did get out of the state, but not until later. And by that point that he was getting out in the eighties and nineties, he had said, you know, blues had been reduced to sort of doing the one four five blues hammer um, kind of stuff. I mean Kim Matson of the Mr Stress Blues Band was a an astounding guy, I mean, just a immensely fantastic Gong. he said you know Stevie Ray Vaughan ruined blues <laughs> said, don't get me wrong don't get me wrong he's a great guitar player but he ruined it and oh I yeah, so did totally agree yep and he just, so did the blues brothers but someone listening to this might say like yeah but you're talking about white blues and I'm like right but In that world, and this is going from also things I've read with Alan Wolf, Muddy Waters. Uh, you know, Muddy Waters who probably had the first integrated Chicago blues band, and they said, you know, what the hell, you know, why do you have this guy Paul Usher or Bob Marlin? He goes, because they're good. Um, and Robert Junior Lockwood loved loved stress, and he loved Jimmy, and Jimmy even played with Lockwood for a while. So you can't say that. That they weren't any good or were false or they were culture appropriating because in that world they were loved. You know, among black folk. They loved those guys. They loved Stress, and Stress was a kid, you know, a tough kid who'd grown up on the projects. Uh he, he knew the street as well as anybody else. And it's like the great stories about like Leonard the Chess brothers, that you know, they were Polish, you know, Polish Jewish immigrants who also grew up in the project were poor and tough. And apparently, Leonard Chess's favorite word was motherfucker, you know, and uh, he could go head to head with anybody verbally. Uh, So he could walk the walk and talk the talk that he was Jewish and, and Polish and white. Didn't seem to matter to guys like Muddy Waters. And it's an interesting perspective, and you know, a white guy talking about this, and I suppose it's skewed, but I mean, it's an interesting perspective about how we can sometimes forget about time and place and perception from the other side. Um, I'm a sort of sidestep example of that is that great Saint Nanny Hall by Woody Allen, in which the guy's talking about Marshall McLuhan, and you know, Woody pulls Marshall McLuhan out from behind the plant. And McClellan goes, you know, I'm Mr. McClellan. <laughs> you completely don't understand where I'm coming from. and well, they're waiting in uh, line for
0: the movie, for that. Yeah. Yeah. In line, right? yep. yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, you know, and, it's, and then that shit still goes on. I mean, there's, you know, people who, who get this recognition and it's Emperor's New Clothes. I mean, they, they, they you know, they outright suck and people hold them up. And it's kind of like, you know, you don't have to accept this tanky product you know there's, there's there's tons and tons and tons of great writers out there great musicians and great everything who they're not on your radar so you know seek them out for christ's sake. and so, you know that's again we go back to the bootlegs on that whole circuit I mean this, this desire to hear what else is there i mean i mean you're being offered this music on the mainstream which you don't have to sit, get on your knees, and accept like communion. I mean, you can say no. This, this stuff tastes like shit. I want something better. Uh, give me some of the wine. And you know, I just—it's uh, something that troubles me because this—I to me, music has been a major part of my life, and I'm 45, and it's still what partially runs my life. What does run my life? That's that's you know, that's how my rent is paid. That's how food is put on the table. It's all from music. And uh you know, it's 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 just it it's it's in my blood and it's like I, I always have a cast when people are going on the the oh that new Taylor you know, that new uh, Taylor Swift record and I'm like <laughs> I, you know, uh, okay, well it's pop. I mean it's 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 put in a nice little package with a pretty bow on it. I mean if you're going to go there, why don't you listen to Miley Cyrus or Lady Gaga? Because they're not ruined by auto-tune, and they're actually, I think, making genuine music. I mean, I don't tend to listen to it, but I feel that they're coming from a genuine place. I mean, Miley Cyrus brought the Flaming Lips on tour as her backing band. I'm sorry if she destroys anybody else in that field. You know, know, listen to Missy Elliott. Please listen to Missy Elliott. Please listen to any number of hip-hop artists who are... Still making groundbreaking work, um, and are, or, you know, I don't know because they're older. You know, it doesn't make you look young and hip. I don't know. Uh, I really can't speak to that. Um, am I talking too much? <laughs> no, no, I love it.
0: I, this is one. This is kind of pretty, pretty good for an interview, right? <laughs> for to have you talking. Well, it's great, and it just, it's just check. nice to hear it a perspective I have shared by
3: someone else. I feel, I feel that asshole talks too much. My God, he didn't shut up, Joe. Jesus Christ, why do you bring that fucker on the show? <laughs> I mean, uh, thankfully, I've switched from high high test French French roast to more a uh, medium city roast. So that's why I'm not uh, going in circles here. Uh, well, I am going in circles, but at least I know where the point, the starting point is. Um, so, granted, this also then ties back into the normal life versus not so normal life, and I don't judge people who who choose that, but I don't, you know, there's a great scene in Spike Lee's, Lee's Spike Lee's Malcolm X song in which um, Malcolm X is speaking with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and he, he puts the ink in the glass of water, and it's taint, and so of taints it, and the says, you know, if you take this and you give it to the people, they will accept it because it's coming from you. And, um, the way Denzel Washington reacts as Malcolm X is pretty pointed because you can see on one hand he's like, "That's why would I offer something tainted?" But at the same time, he begins to see the power of of you as a figure that people trust. And this isn't a political broadcast, so we won't get into that and what's happened. You know, the the, the media manipulation that can happen. That's. Part of my degree too. I also my my old man was a hard boiled, uh, you know, alcoholic newspaper man who, as things switched over slowly, he grew very bitter at the changes in the industry. But he, you know, he always had a very uh, skewed perspective, and um, that was based on his experiences, uh, which were going back to the fifties, and uh, that had an influence on me uh, in the power of words and how you present words in a certain way that can certainly make or break people's perception of things like, okay, I don't know what it was like to say Omaha at that time when we were coming of age, if you will, but I had, but along those lines, I had, and I mean, basically I'm saying like those are different times and it, it really is true and the cultural focus I think was very different and things change. And I totally am fine. I mean, it, it, things change. I mean, there, were, you know, there's a Joel joke that a, uh, when uh, record players became affordable and came on the market, there were a hell of a lot of sheet music publishers who were enraged. But then, uh, when the printing press, you know, started to come in, there were a hell of a lot of calligraphers who were suddenly out of work. I mean, this is not you know, digital eliminated people who work printing presses and. Except specialty stuff and digital printing. So, I mean, I had a roommate who was a specialist in certain kinds of digital printing on uh on um, analog and digital printing on blueprints. And uh, he's a uh extraordinary are actually extraordinary noise artist and lines. And but he actually was a classical Spanish guitar player. <laughs> and uh, you know, he when the print shop closed, he. He went back to school, finished up his master's degree, and he teaches math now. But you know, he he's happy, but he's lucky. He's lucky that he has the self. You know, he had he had a way to sort of put himself into his, to to the change. I didn't wanna. I was too. I was so afraid when I was playing music of ending up like one of these little punkers at the bar, sitting in the corner, thing you know, blasted and hoping against hope that somebody would recognize so they could sit there and launch into one of their, let me tell you about punk rock kit stories, which is <laughs> to me a, a form of hell that uh, one should never have to experience. Granted, it's a first world problem, but I'm sure, you know, it exists elsewhere. Um, but yeah, my older half sister was a was way into funk and disco and my older half brother was an LA punk. I mean, his dad was in LA, so he came up to live with us, but he first turned me into, like, the Buzzcocks when I was about six, and Black Flag, and Bow Wow Wow, and Talking Heads, and my mother was the one who was into Bowie, you know, she let's dance and all that, and she loved Fleetwood Mac, and she loved, but she's, uh, my mother did so she loved blues and she loved uh, as, as did my father so I had this real palette and I think for me the life changing moment was when I was about six as well my sister had bought Donna Summer, Love and more and I can still recall the first time I heard I feel love and I was in the living room and it came on and I stopped in my tracks and I had just Thought it was the most extraordinary thing, and I remember pretending on the couch that I was playing synthesizer, and there was like an A bomb going off. I still adore worship that song, and it's such an important, pivotal piece of music. Its influence is almost infinite. Um, but you know, you have something like that happen. You, you know, you want, it's like a drug. You know, you want to. You won't chase that high. I'm not still chasing that high, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I'm glad I can still kind of get to it. I mean, uh, all that, but I mean, it's it it was extraordinary that um I was able to get involved with Smogvale, and that happened the same way that everything else did. Joe, you know, I we had heard Andrew and I had heard about the Lochner box set at that time. A guy named Chris Hunter Grove who'd been the DJ and WMBR in town was also involved, and I forget who I'd met Chris through, but he was also a Wagner fanatic, and he'd actually secured a cache set of uh, tapes from a guy named Mike Weisskopf, who I think had gotten them from Chris Tigliano of Loud.com. And they were about like, 20, 25 tapes of Wagner stuff, you know, all kinds of stuff.
4: And um,
3: and we have found the masters of most of that stuff since. And those masters were the sources on the the, the box set. But one thought, one track we didn't have the master for was the Cinderella's Revenge uh, tune. I'm so fucked up. We don't actually have that master because I think it was something Mark Price recorded. He was doing sound. He was the and He's uh, deceased, and no one seems to know what happened to his tapes. I, I hate to think about what Mark may also have had in his uh, stash. Oh, Well, the good news is is that we, Frank, acquired a plethora of early Tim Huey recordings, um, like a full bags worth. And um, I had heard two really early tracks from 73 and 74 via a compilation that this guy Kleinfelter, had put together uh, was sort of a acquirer of rare Cleveland recordings. Um, it's the first place I ever heard Keith Bush, who was in the Rugged Bags. It was another tragic, sad story. He sort of he sort of sits, it literally sits in between like Longner and um, Jim Shepard. Although I don't think Keith really wrote music, but he was an really interesting guitar player, an interesting guy, and I think he was the bartender at JB's, in Canada, which is how most people knew him, but um, he got way too young, you know, and... Um, how old was he? 30s. Uh, the big rumor on, on him, the big, big rumor on him was that he was actually in the National Guard at Kent State. Oh, He didn't really? kill anybody. He, he, yeah, that's a rumor. That Johnny from from oh god, what man was Johnny Flynn? Might have been in Zero Defects. I think he was in the probably facts. Uh, told me that story. He says it was it was always a rumor. He didn't kill anybody. He didn't fire his gun, but he was there. And he said it really messed with him for the rest of his life. And which I can imagine. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, if you if you think about who also was affected by Kent State, I mean, we are in 9/11 talking about this, but Kent State was its own. Um, May 4th 70 was its own 9 eleven in Ohio. Uh, when you think about uh what happened and who also it was there, you know, I mean Barry Casale, Chrissy Hind, um Mark Withersbau, I think it wasn't there, but he was at state at that time. Um, and I think Chris Butler of uh, Huey was also there. And um I may be wrong about that, but it really messed with a lot of people, and that was, you know, if you've read any of Jerry Casali's texts on this, or uh, any of the books on Devo, all of which are pretty excellent, uh, talk about the how this led to one of the one of the one of the major pieces of conceptualization by Casali and Mosbauer and Bob Lewis, uh, who who uh, was an early part of Devo uh, of deevolution which seems awfully, you know, astute now. And, uh, but at the time was, you know, because of the uh, other costumes, you know, people sort of dismissed them as a novelty act. But I mean, when, what better way to present such a radical philosophy than in the guise of sort of a clown suit, if you will. Um, which is also, I mean, you can say that about a lot of things. It sort of goes back to ways about Don productions. production. Is that it's this sort of sticky sweet. Uh, Power pop exterior, but inside it's total darkness. I mean, you can say the same about, say, Michael Disney from the UK, from Ireland, uh, with uh Capa Coughlin did, uh, you, um,
0: did you ever see Devo when they opened for themselves as Dove, the band of love?
3: No, but I had a boot. I had a bootleg like the Long Beach show, and um, I thought that was just amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. I mean, how they were doing. <laughs> <singing>, um, <sighs> No worries. I just wanted
0: to, to know. I love. No, please, no. It's about because
3: them. it's it's, it's <laughs> a great. It's a great, well. I'll give you one that's not well known. Uh, Pat Ryan, who was Cinderella Baxter's sound man, and he was the first sound man of Ubu. He was Ubu sound from '76 to '78, and his brother Leo, his older brother Leo, uh, played with Peter and Blue Drivers and in Wolf, the Wolves. And his younger brother Jack uh, was Adele Berti's, uh best friend and still is. And um, Pat sadly died a year ago. Pat was one of my very best friends and someone who talked me off the ledge a lot in regards to when I sort of wanted to walk away from the box set when it seemed that it was never gonna happen because of the uh, the major delay, by the way, with the box set came when Tim died. Kim Wright died and there was a wife shift over to Marianne, and it just, it took a lot longer legally than it should have. But um, well, That's what happened, but the good news is that in the meantime, we kept finding more and more and more tapes, and we're still finding tapes. Even after this, we found two more recordings of Peter that we didn't have before, uh, one of which is from 73, and uh, is a solo session, and another is uh, more stuff with him with Mr. Stress Blues Band in 72. So it's amazing that this stuff is still being found. I mean, it's it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it, but it's, hey, you know. David Thomas's recent email regarding uh, not the box set, but a piece that had come out before the box set, which I'm not going to mention, but had a lot of questionable stuff in it, and it was sort of presented in a way that takes a lot of things out of context. He wrote sort of a vague email to the, his mailing list about being taken out of context. And uh, let me set the record straight. And he has been portrayed occasionally as the villain in Peter's life. And we have never presented him that way, because it's not true. Um the decision for Peter to leave Kanubu was a collective one, uh, as far as I know. Uh, you know, David and Tim talked about it, but I know that Scott and Alan and Tom supported the decision. Pat Ryan had recalled them having a discussion at practice uh, about it. Uh, he told a story about Peter coming into practice towards the end. And, uh, again, this is Pat's story, so I want to emphasize it past story, David hasn't said that this happened or not, um, and Peter just being foobar and playing on the floor, and, you know, his Peter's own accounts of being a practice uh, that he wrote about in If You choose, choose to Go, about David having to kick him awake, and, you know, and I think a lot of that was boredom. Because if you look at the histories of Peter's bands, they don't last very long. And I don't think Peter liked sharing power. That's Benzik had always said that because we were supposed to continue pins as airstream. And he just said, you know, it went from we're gonna do 50-50 split your song's my song to Peter dominating things and I said, you know, fuck you, man, here we go again. And you know, it it I think Peter just he was sort of like Sly Stone, you know, in that I think he figured it out real early. He was an extraordinarily talented guy who was a sponge, who could do any number of styles. And I think when you've got that kind of talent, you
4: just, I don't know. I think you can get
3: forward real fast
4: Yeah, as you look yeah, I was at the next level. About,
3: that,
0: about his band. His band's not lasting very long, but it, it seems pretty clear that that, yeah that yeah. things were working yeah. in his head a little faster than maybe the people around him, and he just, or whatever their their ideology was about the band, and he wanted to kind of move along faster than they could.
3: Yeah, and I think that's all sort of the illumination about the television stuff, which we again have Richard Lloyd and Tom Berlain and Billy Sickness to thank um, for that, especially Tom. Uh, we would speak with Fred Smith. Billy didn't even really recall Peter. Um, Lloyd gave me his own take on it, and Lloyd's an extraordinary person to talk to. I mean, I swear I gained IQ points talking to him. Uh, he's very engrossing. Um, you want to make sure you get a good Richard and not dark Richard, but dark Richard is interesting too. Um, but, you know, that it was sort of like I had said, is that basically Peter would have been Billy, uh, Billy Rip. He would have been playing the part as they were written and had little to no creative input. Uh, so while it is it's, it is a wonderful fantasy to think about Peter actually replacing Richard Lloyd in television, doing his own thing, um, I think even Tom knew, Tom Verlaine knew, that he was going to have to wield the This Is My band thing over Peter, because next thing you know, it would have been like what Peter was inadvertently doing in the Mr. Stress Blues Band is that he was slowly taking over the group from Bill. And Bill said, you know, hey kid, look, this is my band and we do what I want. And I've let you he gave Peter some of his things, he let Peter sing songs. He let them do um, we have a recording of Peter doing uh leopard skin pillbox hat with the Mr. Stress Blues band. There's two versions, there's one from seventy two which would not put out but there's also one from when he sat in with them in '76 that, that does circulate. It's there. You just look for it. It's there. Can't handle it. Um, and uh, he leads. I mean, he Bill's playing harp, but I mean, it's. I think Peter was trying to push him into a further direction, and Bill, you know, kind of loose. And um, some of that is explored in the the piece, but it it. it it, if nothing else, it, 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 it's an attempt to tell a historical story uh, about a little chunk of American life as it was from folks who I feel contributed greatly to the canon of American music and American culture, which is, I think, something we've gotten sadly far away from. I think we forget that Miles Davis and Jackson Pollock are. Our American culture, you know that that uh, that William Faulkner and Barbara Ironreich are American culture. I mean, it's it's it, Carson McCullers, and uh, I can go on and on and on, like you can. You know, it's it's Otis Redding. I mean, come on. Uh, but it's sort of how easily we forget. And I guess my whole goal, part of this, and you talk about hero worship in your notes to me uh you know you don't want to be an aj weberman you don't want to (laughs) be a garbologist oh god i if you want to your listeners if you want to really free yourself out about what where fandom can lead to and i'm not talking Mm -hmm. about mark david Chapman, but you know look up aj weberman on youtube and you know the still Go ahead. He's still
0: like that, I think. I think he's still like putting out books, he's releasing books and books and books still, right?
3: Um, oh, like- he, yeah. He said that he's the reason. Recently said he's the reason Bob has a career. So it's like, uh, you know, yeah, take from that as you will. But it 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 just in terms of Peter with Lou Reed, I'm gonna just say that Robert Benzing met. Lou Reed in the 80s and what he said to Lou Reed was you know my friend Peter is dead because he wanted to be you and then what we get into with that is public versus private persona Mm -hmm. and not so much like the duality like if you will like an example that most people would never take seriously is Gigi Allen and Kevin Michael Allen I have luckily known and know people who played with him and they draw this very firm iron door line between Kevin and Gigi. And Kevin was intelligent, well-spoken, thoughtful, loved and cared about his friends and was, you know, this Guy who could write one hell of a melody, and VG was the human one-man destruction machine. And people think of him and they see the naked guy running on stage, you know, throwing shit, smearing himself with blood, and you know, attacking people. But there really is this bizarre dichotomy. Um, and for anyone who doubts this, I say watch the bonus footage of Unhated, the documentary about him, in which they've got the last. Day of his life where he has that crazy show at the, um, it's called The Gas Station in New York, which, regardless of anything, the two songs that they perform are just absolutely incredible. Could clever from the Chrome is on guitar. And, um, just, just, just incredible. It's like they put everything they have into these two songs. And then he's walking around New York in a trench coat, like his own wear and his boots. And, he keeps going, I just want to get
4: hot, man. I just want to get high
3: and surrounded by all these punk kids, it looks like, you know, Washington crossing the Delaware. And they're at a corner and this really well dressed woman with a baby carriage. And she turns around and she goes, Kevin! and he goes, Hey and they embrace. Now remember, he's covered in like oil and shit. And she, you know, she looked like an executive. And they're talking. Oh, have you been? Oh, I do right? It's it's one of the most absurd things you'll ever fucking see. And then then she leaves, and he goes back. Then he was on to her, thinking, I Hi, hi. And it's like, holy shit, you know? And it it's that again. It's like how much of Peter did we see in the public, and how much was was private, and I have seen some of the private stuff uh, in terms of things that have been shared with me by people who were very close to him that we would never release to the public. And it's very complex, and a lot of people knew different versions of Peter, and uh, it's really hard to say. I don't think he was a phony, but I think he, because of his extraordinary talents, could be many different people depending on the music he was into or who he was running with or what drugs he was doing at the time um you know it really is one of those things that goes in, i think in terms of also like just the perceptions of celebrity it's a lot about like you know what warhol talks about but also to some extent philip Kadeck and JG ballard and um do you really ever know the person behind the public persona? And can you understand that there is a persona, but also a real person behind that persona? And of course, again, Mark David Chapman's uh, assassination of John Lennon is a great example of it. And um, I think another one that's really important to point out, and I'm really going into left field here, is um, Leonard Skinner. Because I don't think people realize that Ronnie was um, a lot of his songs are not him talking. He's taking personas on other people. Like Sweet Home Alabama is almost, I think, a sarcasm, because they were from Jacksonville. And I met this long, long, long-term standard fan who really opened my eyes up, and she said, you know, I thought they were much like, you know, rednecks and stuff like that. She's like, oh, no, no, no. She said, Ronnie wanted to be Sam Cooke. He wanted to be Marvin Gaye. And you take a song, you take the rock and roll monolith that is the song, Saturday Night Special, Mr. Saturday Night Special, and the just astounding groove on that song that is a black group. And the fact that a Southern rock band are doing an anti-handgun song very clearly, not even subversive is somewhat extraordinary or that small in which he's you know condemning I think it was Gary Rossington for being for nearly getting himself killed for being fucked up while he was driving and this is not good old bullshit I mean this is real conscious stuff and I think you know you've got songs in which Ronnie really adapted a persona and I think unfortunately some people Fans think that that he's speaking for himself, and I don't necessarily think that he is, having listened to a couple of the records since then. And also, like if you guys were idiots, you know Tom and Al Cooper wouldn't work with you. <laughs> so, you know, and that's something to think about too. And it's like that to me is an example where she said, you know, the current politics of the band of Skinner, as they are now led by his younger brother, or Ron, would be disgusted by. And it's something that just gets into the complexities of of, of, of being in a band, and, and being in a band is harder than being in a marriage. I mean, it's is the worst times in a band are just like they produce scars that don't heal, and um, you're dealing with ego, you're dealing with insecurity, you're dealing with budding heads and ideas that. Different people have, and the way that they hear a song or a riff, and what they want to do with it, and confl- conflict It's just—it's it's amazing that bands stay together as long as they do. Stay like as long as the Scorpions or Golden Earring or even the Stones—you know—have stayed, stayed together. It's—it's it's just extraordinary because uh, I think bands that are, are truly successful and long-lasting are bands that have figured the shit out. Although I, I've always been heard that. Mick and Keith don't even really talk anymore. But I mean, I I personally believe they should have quit after Undercover. Keith should have gone off to play with Keith uh, with Tom Waits. But hey, with Lionel. I, I was just <laughs> going to say the same thing. Yeah, I was going to say he
0: should have
3: uh-huh.
0: kept up after Rain Dogs and just stayed with Tom Waits. Yeah, well,
3: I like Keith. I I think Keith is. My wife yeah. once said this really wonderful thing. She's like Keith has become one of his own heroes. Um. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. You know.
0: Yes. Yeah. He's. Yeah. Up, I think there's very little to not like about um, about his persona.
3: Mm-hmm. And um, there's a guy here in town uh, who plays uh, in a very fun band called Rock Bottom uh, whose girlfriend works for the Stones in, in costume department and are in their stage gear. And she said that like Keith is just the most incredibly nice guy and she says he's always thanking her and she's like i mean i work for him know, yeah. <laughs> it's always nice to hear that when people like to sit about you know i tell you about wire that they're all really sweet really kind and um the buzzcocks too and you know when you meet you meet folks on that level like jimmy fox who i spend a lot of time talking to and still speak to uh jimmy of the of the james gang when we were doing the sports fox blues crusade release i mean he's just Really down to earth, wonderful guys. is Richard Shank, who, uh, played in a pre-James Gang version, a band called Governors with Jimmy, and also was on the James Gang record, um, Newborn, which is incredibly underrated. But it was great to get stories about Tommy Bone, you know, when he was with the gang and Miami. Great. That's a great record. And uh, sadly, it, it's overlooked. Um, but, you know, to hear stories about these folks who, I mean, and, you know, Tommy's another one, like Peter Lochner, or like, say, Tim Buckley or Jeff Buckley, Darby Crash, who were these unbelievably talented people who I think left way too soon. Um, but that's rock and roll. I mean, Jimmy Hennessy, you Joe Harrison, blah, 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 blah. I mean, uh, hell, Brian Paul of the Association was a heroin addict. I mean, that, that, how does that make – that doesn't make any sense, but
0: the that's a reality. Um, oh God! It's, yeah, it's just—it's really nice to hear about the, the Buzzcocks because I know there's that Peter Hook book about Joy Division, and he just always talks about how wonderful they were to them. It really helped them out so much, and that they were kind of like almost parental in their um, in how they acted with the other uh, Manchester bands and everybody around there. So it's it's nice that that's being confirmed. It's
3: wonderful. Uh, they were genuinely. I remember now, when I met him, you know, Steve Garvey and John Mayer were no longer in the band. It was um, Tony Barber, and I forget who the drummer was, but it was Steve and Pete. I spent about three hours with Pete. Um, Just a sweetheart, patient, um, genuinely nice guy, and, you know, who's also nice to Richard Boone, who was their manager, I mean, he's a sweetheart. John Mayer, as you know, has become an extraordinary photographer, and his his Twitter feed is if you, anybody's a fan of Buzzcocks, I highly recommend follow John because he's just tells he kept immaculate records of their history. But a funny story about Pete Shelley, that is kind of just in a degree to which he he was a wonderful person. Was well, I used to be roommates with, bandmates with, and pretty friends with a guy named Tim Morse, who was the first and the last Ravenal cunt. Anal Cunt uh, released Morbid Forest, a pretty twisted side play, because it's Shelly from the cover of the Homo Sapien 12-inch <laughs> cut out, put against all these flowers, and they drew an upside, un- <laughs> they drew an upside down cross on its forehead. Having spent a lot of time in Anal Cunt's world and 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 the members of that band, most of them were actually really wonderful people. You never know it, but they really were, and. Very funny, and the humor in that band was very complex. And, um, yeah, but Just Putnam, I, again, we're talking about two different things. I mean, but, anyways, Tim and I went to go see the Buzzcocks, I think around 97, and they played the Paradise. And uh, Tony and I, of course, talked, and, um, I, Tim's like, oh, God. Shall I talk to Pete Shelley and apologize for that cover? And I said, well, well, I don't know if you need to apologize, but Tony's like, Oh, you were in the you were in the anal Cunt.
4: Oh, hang on, I'll grab Pete.
3: So out comes Pete, and he goes,
4: Ah, oh, it's a guy from the anal Cont.
3: And he goes, Hey, uh, you weren't mad about that cover. He goes, mad?
4: Mate, I love this. That was great. That was fucking great. I went up sound crawled, in my head, that was fucking
3: great. He loved it. He thought it was it was a wonderful tribute.
4: <laughs> that someone had actually done that.
3: That's so But great. I think oh yeah. I mean it's you know it's I mean Manchester's so rich with incredible music that spans decades and when you meet folks, you know Alan Hempsel and all the guys in Chrispy who were so disgustingly underrated. You know, like just wonderful folks, and like Dick Wits and Joe and uh, Andy from the Passage. Um, another vastly underrated group. Um, just wonderful people, especially when when they find out that you're actually interested in their music. Uh, the only person from Joy Division I've ever interacted with was Peter Hook. And he, um, I've been a long time contributor to a site called Joy Division Central. And we were trying to confirm some of the canceled dates on the North American tour that Joy Division did. And we we're supposed to do an in 80s. It was my pet project for about two years. And he wrote us this wonderful letter back about, oh my God, you guys really, in your research, holy crap. And uh, this was before the book came out. So, I mean, maybe we, we helped him go dig in his basement for the itinerary. Um, my very sad regret there was I was in touch with uh, Annick, who was um, Ian's girlfriend, who had uh set and she had notes that she was willing to share with me. And then that damn movie came out and she went in hiding. And uh, for she could send that stuff to me, and she's no longer alive. And she's very sweet, and she liked what we were doing. But this folds into Lochner, that was kind of like my dry run. And then, uh, you know, everybody we met with like maybe two exceptions that are just bizarro stories. um, Sort of people in people's life who were sort of on the fringe. I've just been unbelievably generous with recordings and photos and, and documents and stories, just unbelievably generous. But when you think about someone who didn't even live to be 25 who is still impacting the people he knew and played with and loved decades later.
4: I mean, like
3: Alexander the Great you know or or you know something like that I mean that's that's extraordinary that you have that much of an impact in this life that we live and you you're the reverberations of your existence are still affecting people and the release of the box that has only cemented this I, I I mean, I can't even, I, that's what I mean. I don't know him any better. I, I don't even know how to assess that. And folks, you know, say, oh, you must be so proud. I'm like, no, I'm just glad it's fucking done. <laughs> <But> it, <laughs> it
0: was it, exhausting, you said earlier. Well,
3: somebody said, oh, you're an expert. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert. I mean, you can't be. You can't be. It's, it's not possible. No, 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 There's no way for every story to be known or told. There's no way for someone in their brain to be understood unless they've revealed it to you. And even then, your perception of what they are saying to you is probably different from what's in their head. And yeah,
0: they're, they're determining what to tell you in the first place. So they're not going to tell you everything.
3: Well, and, it, you know, there's a big thing, about, you know, it's nobody's business. Mm-hmm. No, there is there. It's nobody. I mean. I don't, you can not print this, but like, I know what I said about Miley Cyrus, like, I listen to her, but I, I, I really admire what she has done with her position as a celebrity. Okay? I really admire her and also in the Bill Murray Christmas special when she, says, she sings. It's like, okay, she's got the talent. But this constant bombardment, like, right out of, again, like, right out of, like, a Philip K. Dick book. Of bombardment about her leaving her husband and being with his woman, like leave her the fuck alone. Let her just live her life, please. You know, and shit they used to do with to Madonna and Michael Jackson. It's just like God, leave them alone. Yep, they're people. They're people. You know, oh Prince was a drug addict. Prince, Prince was in pain twenty four seven. And He is yet another victim of the opioid crisis, but he was in pain 24/7. I mean, the man in chronic pain. I mean, he was a Jehovah's Witness, and he, well, you know, they should. Do, well, you're not a Jehovah's Witness, and they have very specific things that they follow, and you can't get mad at him for that. So, you know, when people sort of take it personally when people die, it's sort of like, you know. They have an impact upon us, but at the same time, they're humans, they're not gods. And, uh, you know, the, so you asked me, you know, you asked me if there's gonna be a part two, like I said, that's up to Frank and Mary Ann. Uh, the box set will not be reissued partially because, though it has been greenlighted to the possibility by the estate,
4: the number
3: of Pressings that we'd have to do the the amount of in the pressing that we'd have to do frank just, He doesn't want to do that um, But that's not to say there may not be more releases coming up in the future with lockman. I'm not hiding anything. I just don't know Uh, I stay out of it. I'm working on the jimmy lay release in the next two as well um, The the wonderful thing of working for frank is that if, if I don't know about it. I don't have to worry about it, you know <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: I now, can for the, the back for season. those
0: two for the two in the future that you're that you're not going to mention are they they're also Cleveland related or Ohio related?
3: One is Cleveland related. The other one is uh, near Cleveland. Um, okay, just curious. But it's it's yeah because they're not official yet. The Jimmy right. oh, Lay no, one is like Oh no no no! What I mean is that like the Jimmy Lay has been cleared. I mean that okay. we're going to do. Um, the next two are still in the proposal stages in fact I just for the second one I just turned in the new track listing proposal because I'm working from a lot of different tapes and having to extract and make decisions about what should go on and what shouldn't Um, the third one we haven't even started on it's just sort of in the conceptual stage um what I can say is once one artist that we would like to cover in the future and his estate is um, in the hands of people we know and like is John Bassett. Do you know John Bassett?
0: I don't recognize the name.
3: He was a folk he wasn't originally from he was not originally from Cleveland, but he actually put out a record on UA in 1971. And then put out a series of self-released records. Um, How do you spell and the last then it And B A S S H T E. Okay. And uh, he has a, a wonderful song called "It's So Nice Down on Hester Street." And he played regular gigs through when he died, and I think he died in the 90s. Uh, but he had he led a very interesting life, and he was African American, and. Um, there are live recordings out there that have that stream, and uh, he put out several records, and uh, you can get his stuff on eBay or Discogs. It's up there, and um, but he's. We'd like to do sort of a retrospective on on him, you know, possible, and you know, uh, there are other people that we discuss. Um, there was a great '60s. Group in Cleveland called the Case of E.T. Hooley, which was basically a super group. Uh, people who passed through that group, you know, Richard Shack, who I mentioned before, Donnie Baker, uh, sort of the Cleveland guitar hero who passed Mr. Strauss, um, Dale Peters of the uh, James and Chip Fitzgerald of uh, many groups, and um, Paul Klanowski was their first drummer. He was a on again, off again, from stress, but their second drummer was K.J. Knight, who ended up in the Amboy Dukes. Okay. Uh, Really interesting band, interracial. And I remember I rescued the tapes from Suma's basement one or two years ago. And I say rescued because they were moldy. And at that time, it was on, the future of Suma was uncertain with Paul Hammond, unfortunately uh, dying. We'll be uh, way before his time. But um, the tapes are in the hands of Dale Peters, and we hope to maybe do something with them down the road. Um, we shall see. We shall see. <laughs> I, immediately I just
0: went to the, discogs to look at the John Bessette stuff, and yeah, it looks really interesting.
3: Yeah, I would say I would recommend uh, we Warren or uh there's one i forget the name of it but he's on the cover it's a black and white cover he's in a cowboy hat i think yeah, it came out yeah, in like so 72 72. The, oh oh this time around yeah that one's great that's hester street on it and that's the wonderful song and i would say start there but um yeah i mean that's the thing it's like the more you find out the deeper you go, the more you realize you don't know. And <laughs>
0: that's kind of the beauty of it is like, there's always so much more to learn. It's always so wonderful to realize that maybe I still haven't heard my favorite song and I'm going to keep looking for it. You know?
3: Oh, that's a wonderful point. I mean, um, John, I can't think of it, but I only heard a song in the last couple of weeks that I'd never heard before, that the riff is so tight on it that it's it's gross. It's it's just extraordinary. And I can't think of who the artist is, but I just, you know, it's kind of like the first time I heard Princess of the Universe by Utopia. And that was only about 10 years ago. And I, I was so floored by the riff that I remember being at work and having it on repeat. I think I listened to it 10 times in a row. Yeah, obsessive much? Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm not on the spectrum, come on. But I mean, uh, you know, just you get a riff like that and it just, it shapes you. The first time I heard, there's a demo version of uh, Honeyman by Ted Buckley. Mm-hmm. And I was so thrown by the groove on that. I <laughs> started pounding the wall at work. And uh and my boss said, like, don't put your, phys- please don't put your fist phys- in the wall. <laughs> but it just, you know, it, it hits you like that. And you're just like, oh my God, you know, it's it's, it's it's something else. And, um, you know, you think about, like, a great riff like that is a Born on the Banana Sign uh, by Albert King. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just that intro. Um, so, uh, you know, but anyways, you know, th- for that I would also apply it to Final Solution by Perry That intro based on it by Tim Wright uh, is yep. just so distinct. You hear that, you, you, you immediately know what it is, or Heart of yeah, Darkness. I, so, and I'm happy to answer any other uh, questions that we haven't uh,
0: covered. Oh yeah, sorry, I was just sort of now just want to hear stories.
4: <laughs> yeah, It's <laughs> funny. I've
0: been um, since that box set, since the locker box that came out, I've been just pouring through um, the Perubu stuff, but uh, the Dave Thomas solo stuff. Um, I've been really getting into or not necessarily solo, but his name is used on it with whatever bands, The Wooden Tops, or whatever it might be. There's some a lot of really, really fun stuff there. Really interesting.
3: Yeah, and you know, and you know what also gets ignored, which I think is kind of a crime, are some of the records that Ubu did uh, later on, specifically, Cloudland It's wonderful. And Worlds and Collision's a lot of good. And Tenement Year's got a lot of great stuff, like Drunk Had a Hat, or We Have the Technology. And uh, Story of My Life is way overlooked. My um, Reagan Suitcase is kind of where I stop. I mean, that album, people love that record. I'm, I'm not a fan of it. I'm not dismissing it. And that's what I think I have to, you know, that you have to remind people, like, I'm not saying it's garbage. I'm not saying it's crap. It's not. It's just not. When the band goes into that direction um th- I don't follow them uh, and that's not to say the stuff sucks it, that that no oh, right. I mean not at all um I mean Steve Melman is absolutely astounding drummer um I personally feel like he can you know pray for breakfast, but that's me. Uh, cause I'm not a huge fan of the old part. Um, Me either. <laughs> don't tell my wife. I think the first, I actually think the first three Rush records along the world stage are actually okay. But they're, they're kind of like a pro at Zeppelin rubber band at that point. Um, but yeah, don't tell my wife that. Uh,
4: <laughs>
3: I have to hide the eight track somewhere on that. <laughs> but, um, but I think that, you know, you can't if he's involved if Steve's involved, Robert Wheeler's involved or Michelle, Michelle Temple's involved, it can't be bad. It just it's not possible. Uh, but there are
0: times just, in the evolution of a band when they seem when they make a change and it's sort of it sort of feels like, well, they're still great, but they're just not writing songs for me right now. But just, you know Maybe I'll come back and we'll meet up again someday. But as of as of right now, like
3: you know, it's just not mine. Well, and that gets dangerous. Um, You know, like, I mean, I used to play with Peter Prescott. I was in the very last version of Customize, and I was in the peer group for two years, which was like bad group therapy, but that wasn't necessarily Peter's fault. But, like, you know, Burma, when they got back together, desperately trying to start doing all their new material. They really wanted to not have to, you know, especially, like, I think by the time they put up the third or fourth record of the reunion, you know, they. Well, they're all big fans of Wire, especially Peter, and they kind of wanted the Wire approach, or even like the Boeing approach, where you,
4: you know, you,
3: Graham Lewis said in an interview, you know, when he asked me, you know, why don't at that time, when one by Ford come out, and they were playing live, someone said, like, why aren't you doing stuff with Pink Flag? And Graham said, we're not a human jukebox. But didn't, and,
0: they, didn't they just hire a cover band, a Wire cover band, to open for them?
3: 87 Tour, yeah. It's the X ex- Lion Hammers, which is Jim D. Yeah. uh he's the drummer. Yeah, they did paint. That's yeah. what they did. It was brilliant. That was brilliant. Um, <laughs> yeah, what a great idea. Dynamite Hemorrhage, the fanzine actually just did a big story on them. I don't know it's out but they interviewed as many people as they could and get eyewitness witness reports, and um, but I, you know, I, I feel like the 80s Wire stuff is, is disgustingly overlooked. I mean, uh, Drill is fabulous. And I mean, I did a copy and it's beginning to impact wonderful records. But everybody's going pink flag, pink flag, pink flag, one two it's you. And I, that's where that gets dangerous because you've got to let a band evolve. You've got to oh, let absolutely. a band move forward. I mean, I love George Harris solo. I love George. He's the only, you know, as a former Beatle fanatic. I mean, that's pretty much what I put on for pleasure and um, I don't really listen to London, so I don't don't listen to McCartney or Ring of Star solo. Um, If I'm listening to Beatles, it's select songs like... you know, Other than temporary
0: secretary, of course. McCartney. Uh, Hey,
3: McCartney too. Well, that's a good example that you bring that up because that is Paul trying to actually break out. That record is coming up is wonderful, and that record is cool because that really was him saying, like, let me try this. It's almost like Bob Mould's... Modu- is it modulate? Is it modulate? Um, is that the name of that record? Because I love
0: that record. Modulate, yeah, it was Bob, modulate. I think it was modulate. Yeah. Yep. I, think I interviewed
3: was. Bob for EQ, and the first words that were out of my mouth was this, was like, "I really like modulating." He goes, "Oh, we're gonna get along just fine."
4: <laughs> and
3: Mark Eitzel did the same thing on Candy Apps, which is an extraordinary mm-hmm. record. Mark, definitely, that's, that's a wonderful record, and people are like, "I don't like that electronic like, stuff." But I think if you do it well, you let an artist evolve, yeah. and you don't try to tie them to like what they were doing in their early twenties. Um, oh, And that's not, not what
0: I meant. That's mean. not what I meant earlier. I didn't think. No, did. I didn't think. It, no. Yeah.
3: I didn't think that's what you meant. But I mean, I think a lot of folks. I mean, even the Stones. It's like you know they want to hear Satisfaction. They want to hear Jumpin' Jack Flash. Shit. Somebody said go see the Stones. I'm like, I hope they play Fingerprint File. I hope it's a the star fucker. I hope they play heaven. I hope they play too uh, tough. I don't yeah. need to hear Jumpin Jack flash, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. They've got to be tired of that. That's why I appreciate somebody like uh, very much, so because I'm basically obsessed with him. But uh, Bob Dylan, when he he doesn't do the same versions. I mean, sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes it does. And the way from a, a quote or from something I read by him, he said, the, you know. A song that a recorded version is just a photograph of in the life of a song, so it's going to keep evolving. And it just, he does different versions of them because he doesn't want to get sick of it.
3: Well, that's very true, and that's how you stay on the interest. I was in a band twice called The In Out, who also has an interesting history. And the band was around 12 to 20 years, but I was in the band for eight collectively, and we ended up the first time was in the band we ended up returning touring a lot we toured part of the US part of Canada and 3 weeks in Europe with them. and we had developed an entire set of alternate versions <laughs> of of our of a lot of the songs we played so we had one that we broken down as sort of a dub up version we had another one that we played that we called providence style which was kind of like you know bananas and um well, it was for fun, but it was you know yeah, it's to sort of break up the tedium. But you also sort of go into like again back to Water and the Roxy Roxy music tour where, you met Roxy's crew, but sort of the Roxy organization felt like they were they needed they were having too much. Like the first time I guess time they played, they played like forty five minutes, and so they it too much. The second time was 40 and then that's too much. But then they got like very little stage, in, like 30 minutes. So they, I'm sure you know this, like they attempted then to cram their 45 minute set into 30 minutes and they would play faster and faster and faster and faster. And then very last song, they would drop heartbeat at its rarely speed. And, uh, you, you know, listen to case from the tour and it's pretty wild. I mean, that was, that became their, that became their MO and how they dealt with the team. It was like, okay, how fast can we play the set tonight? How fast can we build up the world that drops to heartbeat? How intense can we make heartbeat tonight? And that's always good too. And, uh, Ms. Gilbert says the way he got through the 88 tour was getting through the sets to get the drill. And drill was kind of his relief, his relief. And, um, you yeah, know, this, to your average fans, this doesn't matter, and I don't blame them. It's boring. It's shot talk, but I mean, it's you know, it's interesting. But it, you know, yeah, I think you can at least I can definitely respect what Ubu's doing. I've just it's not for me, like you said, it's not for me. But I'm not going to tell anybody. It's garbage, and
0: right. I would still go see them if they came through and just played the new stuff because there are um, there are bands where I think. I think it was Nick Cave who last his last two albums were very different from anything I had heard from him, and I I didn't care for them the first time I heard them. But I went and saw them live, and now I love the albums because of how the performance went, and and I got a lot more out of it, and I was able to gain gain more kind of uh, uh, I I'm trying to think of a uh, I kind of was able to digest the album through that experience, and now I love them both. So it can happen. I'm certainly what? wouldn't
3: still go see those. Well, that's a great point too, because if you think about um, bands who just don't translate on a record, um, I know them personally, so this might be a weird step, but I feel like Wussy's never been properly represented on record. Yeah, because to see them live is to like going is like going to church. Uh, the, the three times I've seen them, it's like being it's like going to see like Reverend Al Green, who I have seen. Uh, in his his, uh, church and um, It literally is like going through like a a revival. I mean the fans are insane. I mean in a great way, but it's not blind hero worship. The music that they make is like mana for people. It's like it is a religious text that sustains them through this existence. And and the only other time that I've really experienced that was when I saw the space lady. Yeah. And you'd think you were at a Slade concert in
4: 73.
3: <laughs> or Grand Funk. The way the audiences react. And Susan's a wonderful person. I'd actually met her when I was a kid when she played in San Francisco. I used to go see her and I'd always talk to her and she's always very sweet. So to see her again was wonderful and she remembered me which was really shocking but the audience were just the walls were shaking from the way they were screaming and that is really something to to behold that an artist can do that for you and i think that swings back to what we're saying about peter uh lochner and you know uh there have been a handful of people who have questioned the release because of the sheer amount of covers or, you know, what's so special about this. And how do you say to somebody it's like first I'm a medium, right? I'm not I'm not gonna parade around on Peter's back and say, you know, uh, you know, oh well I did this because I, I'm just a medium, man. I'm just the stuff just passing through me. I'm just I'm just the messenger. You know, I'm not doing anything more than that. And that might be a weird stance, some folks don't say that, but I'm like, but it's true. And the the efforts, the releases are team efforts. They would not happen without Frank, without Ilka from Fly, without uh, Sam Bosch. Uh, In the old days it was Paul Hammond who did our master, now it's Jeff and Maria Peerless. Uh, Ron Kretsch, who's our designer. In the old days it was John Thompson and Mark Schneider, who's my technical editor. God bless that man for his patience. Uh, These are team efforts. They wouldn't happen without them. And Andrew Russ, of course, is a major part of that. And he, he doesn't get in the spotlight. But, uh, you know, you can't, none of us are sitting here going, aren't we great? You know, and and uh, another guy like that, who I have the utmost astounding respect for, is uh, the gent from Dark Entry Records and what he's done on Patrick Cowley's back catalog. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that.
0: No. Dark Entry um, Records, I've heard, uh, but I don't know the...
3: Yeah, I don't know if you've so much into. I don't know if you've been in the music that they put out, but um, do you know who Patrick Kelly was? No. He was San Francisco based. He was a musician and producer. He's cre. He is credited with creating the form of, um, if you will, gay disco known as high energy, which okay. was a okay. huge influence on the Pet Shop Boys, on Jimmy Somerville. Um, Mark Allman, to some degree. I mean, and, and, um, but he had a career, especially back to the early 70s, and as an electronic musician, I think he went to Mills College or he went to SF State. And he's also probably best known for work, for co producing and making the music on, uh, Do You Want to Funk by Sylvester. And, um, but Dark Entry started reissuing his stuff, and they were doing it so well. That in a similar way, people don't. Patrick were like, "Oh, uh, well, I've got tapes. I've got tapes." And it turned out Patrick had scored a bunch of uh, porn films, so those have come out because uh, it's all electronic stuff that he did in the early '70s. So, uh, but then recently, he got con- the guy from the label got contacted by a guy who had like 40 reels. And again. Patrick died young, fairly young. He he was one of the first probably well-known musicians who had died of complications related to AIDS. And in fact, I think him and Klaus Nomi died within days of each other. And a similar thing, his friends, his associates, held on to what they had. And again, like Peter, it turns out that Patrick was constantly running tape. And, it's music, again, that is still affecting people, and he's gaining new fans, but he is this pivotal and important figure in that scene. Nothing else, you know, toward what he, again, what he did with Jimmy Summers and the Pet Shop was. I mean, it's 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 crucial. And these are folks who need to be recognized. I mean, I I guess, in like, the Attica criticism over their Karen Dalton release, because she did mostly cover it, but, She's another one, like much Judy Sill, who's really important. And a fun fact about Karen Dalton is that she was roommates with Peach Marine in the early 70s. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Look up the uh, What's in My Bag with Peach Marine, and he talks about it. That's extraordinary. That's really But of course, Tommy Uh, Chong was in. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, please. I'm sorry. No, no. No, because I love that Tommy Chong was in Bobby Taylor and the Vancouvers who were signed to Motown. I mean, that's also, you know, phenomenal. Did I think I think the song about the band was "Does Your Mother Know About Me," which is dirty, <laughs> but you know it's always fun to find out that people's origins are pretty genuine and pretty, you know, organic. Again, there's a word, but uh, much like you know, we're talking about Ryan Walsh. I mean, the guy really did cut his teeth. He's not somebody who sits in an ivory tower and goes, "I think I'd like to write about Van Morrison today." And yeah, would, you know, or- I was impressed.
0: If you if you have contact with him, tell him that he. I don't know if he'll care, but he I thought he did a great job. Um I'm very, very happy I bought that book and I've had a made I've bought it for other people several times.
3: You should invite him to come on the show because he's a very nice guy and he's very down to earth and he's been very gracious about the retention he hasn't gone to his head, if you will. I just can't wait to find out what he's gonna do next. I'm hoping he'll do another thing on Boston. Um but I don't, you know, people care about Van Morrison. I don't know if people care about long on Boston bands that are aren't very well known. But um, I would love to read it. Like
0: (laughs) any music book by someone who I appreciate as a writer, I don't care what they're writing about. I'm gonna, you know, if they're a good writer, I'll I will enjoy it.
3: Oh, Jimmy McDonough could write about Jimmy McDonough could write about Lawrence Welk, and I'd read it. I mean, Jimmy McGunnis' books on Neil Young and Tammy Wynette are astounding. I, do you know those? Have you read those books?
0: Uh, the JT is
3: the Neil Young one.
0: The, yeah, that. Um, I don't know the Tammy Wynette one though.
3: Um it's just amazing story. It's he her a story, run, but it's I, also. Did he do a Russ Meyer one too? Uh, he may have. I know he had one on this really bizarre filmmaker from New York who was like making not B movies but like Z movies. And um, McDonough is McDonough is one of the few writers that I'm aware of who can tell his, have him be part his own self be part of the story, and it not only works but you're you're in the car with him. You're walking with him. You're talking with him. Barbara Iron I mentioned her before. Barbara Iron Rock can do that. Gina Arnold can do it. Um but it's so hard to do. And when other people yeah. do it, a lot of folks who don't know how to do it, you know, you end up, you know F you, you know. I wanna read about your subject, I don't read about you. I don't care. I don't care if <laughs> you know you <laughs> shit your parents on the way there. I don't care. Um but it's it's Lester Banks does well, as this Peter Lackner. They both do it well, uh, you know if you choose to go if you choose choose to go, it's probably one of the greatest pieces of rock and roll writing of the twentieth century uh, yeah. and yeah, you read about theater, but he makes you care, and I think that's the key, you know, and it's very hard to do, but it was a you know i don't think i think in some ways we didn't just lose a musician, but we lost a great writer. And I do argue the point that I think Peter was actually better than Les Bangs in the way he was sort of able to connect with the reader. At least from my perspective, I think Peter was maybe better at connecting with the reader. Les is like a guy you meet at a party, and he tells you a story while you're standing there. Peter sits down with you, says, "Oh man, let me, let me. Oh yeah, man. I'll tell you. Okay, if you're the new modern lover, right?" <laughs> I'll tell you. I think like, know, yeah, a-
0: Peter would be more likely to be, or from what I can gather, ad lib one of those or just kind of off the cuff and it would come out just as beautifully, whereas I think Lester Banks, as much as it appears that he's kind of doing it off the cuff, I think he actually did revise more, edit more than, than people would probably realize.
3: Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's, you know, it's ridiculous to do analysis of, like, Folks who were long gone from this place, and you're going by what again that again here we are again with that quick persona and what put out there for the public, and we're not dealing with private. And sometimes the private is irrelevant to the public. And, um, you know, maybe you want to say, like, again, and here's this again, like, Lester being raised a Jehovah's Witness might have, you know, informed uh, some of what he did later. I mean, you, you, of course, yeah, you know, it, it can't not, but. To make assumptions, without talking to anybody, about how much that may have played in, and I'm not talking about Jim, Jim Daigardus' book here, not at all, I'm just speaking in general, it is ridiculous. I mean, you know, was Seth Putnam a wild man because he was a good Catholic boy? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. He was a good Catholic boy, loved his mother, and uh, his mother had a nurse's degree in anthropology. So, I mean, you know, who knows? Uh, Darby crash was a was a rich kid apparently, but He didn't act like one so you know who knows, but um We've been talking for over two hours. So I'll probably yeah. ask you have any kind of question for me <laughs> No, I know uh, um,
0: no, I I've gotten everything that that and obviously a lot more than we were um, than even <laughs> we had hoped we would get this has just been so wonderful I hope I hope it wasn't too much of
4: nose
0: up your, your time, but of all the stuff that Go you guys ahead. found, what was what was the best thing that like what's the what's your pa- favorite Peter Lochner original that you had not heard until until you started
3: putting this together? If that makes sense. Um, either that really brief instrumental that's at the um that's on the forty five that comes from the mystery tape. Or, yeah, I must have been out of my mind, which is from the mystery tape. My uh, favorite Peter Lochner original of all time is uh, Down at the Bar, it's a, a, AKA In the Bar. Uh, both titles are correct. Um, I had never heard the version that the box set until we started doing this. That came from Robert the uh, First time I heard that, and Deb Smith's bass, in, I began sobbing uncontrollably because I loved Deb's plan. And again, it was another one of those moments where, you know, you just don't expect to be affected by the music. And that's the the problem with getting deeply involved with this shit is because you become emotionally affected by it. I mean, I'm not a Vulcan, I'm, I'm half Danish, so the drama comes with it. And, um, you know, it's it it to find a tape that you didn't even know existed is really that can be a bit much. Yeah. Thank, you, thank you and so thank much.
0: everybody um for getting this box set put out. It's amazing. I cannot stop listening to it. Right. I love it.
3: All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Take, Take care.
0: One of the first songs that ever completely invaded my whole being was Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo. My brother played it for me when I was maybe 12 or 13, and I've never looked back. It's a song that's never had an equal. Not the best song ever, but there's no other song that comes even close to accomplishing what that song does. It has the perfect sound, perfect pace, perfect instruments, played at the perfect time, perfect singer and perfect lyrics, and was co-written by Peter Lochner. The first CD I ever purchased was Per Ubu's Terminal Tower, and I played the first three tracks on that collection until the CD turned to mush. On that CD, 30 Seconds is sandwiched between two other reasons that Per Ubu is one of the finest bands of all time, Heart of Darkness and Final Solution. Final Solution has the absolute best studio guitar work of Lochner's brief career.
2: I think I was amazed it was going through the Smogvale collection is like how wide of influences he had. And he was such a good guitarist and whatever he played, I mean, it really is pretty incredible that he he could synthesize all his influences. I don't think most people can do that as well as he did.
0: No, it's great. And he could just go from style to style, whatever he felt like playing at the time, or maybe whatever would earn a paycheck, but it was, you go from the, blues rock, to punk, to new wave, to whatever, whatever he felt like playing. It was even the stuff that sounds like he's emulating Bob Dylan. It's perfect.
2: And uh, I think one of the the most um, fun things for me as I was going through the, the interview with Nick was the process of getting all those tapes and cutting them down and what, just thinking about what that must be like to like totally give yourself to a project like that. And you have, you know, this limited amount of time to totally represent yeah. somebody who who may never get another release like this ever. The the kind of the power of of that it was pretty compelling. It
0: seemed like a job that I could I could love. <laughs> it's an incredibly important endeavor, and I don't know why you were so quiet during that interview, but <laughs> <laughs> I think everything I said you just cut out. <laughs>
2: You should probably do that for most episodes, <laughs> so one of the things I kind of found fascinating about and I started thinking about was what it would be like to be that archivist who got to like sit down and pick the the five records worth of music from somebody who may have a vast collection, and how cool, how fun that would be. So I was thinking, like, is there anybody that you could think of that? is kind of deserving of this treatment or who you would actually like to be the archivist of?
0: The issue would be, like, I never had any idea Peter Lochner had so much out there. Mm. But as far as people that I think would be fun to find out, and I think, like, Blaze Foley, there was a documentary about him not that long ago, and there seemed to be albums just sort of popping up every couple years of, like, live recordings and home tapes and stuff. And I bet it seems to me that he was a, a similar character, incredibly right. bright, really good writer and kind of hard to be around sometimes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Definitely. What about you? The one person I was thinking of when I was thinking about this is Abner J. And there has been a few compilations out and but he has a ton of recordings and they were mostly self published and there's they're real rare and hard, but I think there'd be enough tapes and enough recordings of him where somebody really took the time to do it right and really detailed and and really made a great job of it, sort of like they did with Lochner, I think Abner J. box set would be amazing.
0: I wonder if Mississippi has a lot of those tapes because they put out a couple compilations and like a 45, I think.
2: Yeah, they uh, they've, and I mean, those compilations are wonderful, but I think he has something like, at some point I want to do a whole episode on him. I know we talked about him before. Mm-hmm. I would like to research enough to do a whole episode, but I think he has like, something ridiculous like 40 albums or something now some of them might be
0: on tape or something some of
2: them might be self-distributed cds but he's got a ton of ton of music
0: jeffrey lee pierce might be close he had a lot more released than lochner or and recorded than lochner foley abner j but he's probably there's probably some recordings out there i would imagine be fun to go through those Mm
2: -hmm. i wonder if chris bell has a bunch of home recordings
0: Alex Chilton probably does. (laughs) Too many. That would be like 25 LPs probably.
2: (laughs) It'd be like the Columbia House thing where they send you all of them and you have to send back the ones you don't want or
0: you end up paying for them. (laughs) (laughs) First one's a penny. (laughs) What about... We've talked about him before. Also, Angus MacLeese. I don't know whether I would want to sit through that and go through that, but he has got probably has a lot of interesting stuff. I want
2: to say his widow or maybe that one of the schools he went to donated a whole suitcase of stuff they found to Buhara and so they're putting out stuff little by little but if somebody went out he's got so much weird writing and so much stuff but he was a prolific recorder um you probably could do a wonderful uh, retrospective on him yeah that would people would buy he's an interesting guy and very similar in vain to these to Blaise Foley and Peter Lochner, were very important to the scene and on the fringes of, of really important stuff, but never really popular himself.
0: Right, and temperamental, and people loved being around him, but for a limited period of time. Right, right. Yeah. If anybody out there can think of other, other people we're missing, because clearly we're missing others, like Skip Spence or something, but that seems like it's been done and who knows if there's any even anything out there but yeah. think if you think of anything just let us know. I'd like to hear some more.
2: I'm sure somebody's got some good ideas. That would be that would be a fun thing to to look into. Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess we should kind of kind of get on. We we need to say uh thank you to Nick. There's a lot more stuff, a lot more great stories we had to cut out a little bit for time I and mean, we we kept it as long as we could because there was so much good stuff, but we cut out some things but um such an interesting guy. I wasn't at the interview, you probably noticed, but um, I loved listening to it, and it was just kind of fun to hear the stories unfold, and, and really a fascinating project.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping he can come on the show and actually maybe co-host a show with us, rather than in interview format where he can present a turntable talk himself. It's he's a really fun person to to hear speak.
2: Yeah, that would be that would be awesome.
0: Yeah, super smart, uh, really articulate, good. He's just a nice guy.
2: Yeah, so thank you. Thank you for his time and his support. And and
0: And to everyone at Smogvale Records. Oh, yes. Great job. And you
2: probably should go ahead and pick it up if you haven't. I think we touched on it that they may not do another pressing because it was such a, a daunting pressing to begin with. So if you want one, I would go ahead and try to find one pretty soon.
0: It's absolutely outstanding. It's beautiful. Just everything, the way it was all put together, the liner notes is it's its own coffee table book. Everything is just couldn't have been done with more care and thought.
2: What about social media? We got any social
0: media? Yeah, we have Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, I think on Twitter and Instagram, our handle is at highway high five Pod. Facebook, we're very easy to find. You can email us at highway high podcast at gmail.com. And we're also part of the Pantheon Group now. And in our show notes, there's a link to their site where you can find all the other great podcasts that are all music-related.
2: So please go visit Pantheon, listen to some other listen to some other shows. There's some great ones. Our friend Boris's um, love that album is part of the network, and those are a lot of fun. I really like the Rock, rock and Roll Librarian. Yep, yeah, she's great. Really, anything you listen to is pretty great. It's uh, it's fun to listen to people who love music as much as we do. Absolutely. And uh, as always, please go out and buy some records. Go to a live show. Just support something that has to do with money this week. Go grab that Peter Lochner box set before it's gone. It's worth it. But yeah, help some people who deserve it out. Yeah, I think that's about it. We will see you next time.
3: Hey, this is Travis.
2: And I'm Quentin. And we're the hosts of No Filler Podcast. Each week we take an album and dive into the tracks between the singles. We believe that more often than not, it's the songs that weren't singles that are sometimes the best tracks on the album. So far we've covered everything from Sade to Korn. In each episode, we'll dive into a little history of the artist and the album of choice with snippets from interviews and concerts, as well as music from the
3: album itself. Check us out on the Pantheon Podcast Network or anywhere else you get your podcast from.